fullness that we're moving towards. And he concludes chapter three by praying for us that we would achieve this fullness uh, of God. And I thought about this idea of the fullness of God, how he uh, leaves off chapter three as we jump into chapter four here, uh, because there's a guy who passed away this week named Eugene Peterson. If you don't know anything about Eugene Peterson, he was a pastor for a number of years in Maryland. Shout out to Justin. He's a pastor in Maryland. And uh, finished up that, went to go be a professor at a college in Canada, and then uh, finished the rest of his life living in Montana writing. He's wrote a number of books on what it means to be a pastor, really trying to enlarge the vision of pastoral ministry. And among the projects that he worked on when he was writing uh, was he wrote a, a complete devotional translation of the Bible called The Message. Anybody ever read The Message version of the Bible? Well, if you have, Eugene Peterson is the author behind that. He passed away this week. I think he was uh, in his 80s. Um, but in one of the books that he wrote where he's talking about the Christian life, he was really talking a lot about this idea that Paul's talking about, this fullness of God, this unity of the faith that we're going to reach, this sanctification. And the title of this book is, is one that I want to call your attention to. Uh, he says this, the Christian life is essentially a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction. When we follow Christ, we're going to be obedient to him, and that obedience is going to take a long time. It's not going to just be a phase. It's not something we just try on in our 20s. It's something that's going to be very long, and it's going to be in the same direction, moving towards Jesus. And as I thought about that phrase, as I thought about each of you, as I thought about what Paul wants to tell us today in Ephesians chapter 4, I just, I, the, the image came to mind of a road trip. And I don't know if you guys growing up, how many of you went on family road trips before? Was that a thing? Okay. It's, it's weird. We live in Orlando, and many of you are from Orlando. We live in the place where people vacation. So I just, I don't know if people growing up in Orlando, you never went on vacation because you're like, we live in Orlando. Like, we don't need to go on vacation. Um, but, you know, I remember in 1994, we went on the family vacation where we drove from Texas to Orlando to go to Disney World for the first time. Tower of Terror had just opened up, and that was the ride. We were all going to go ride in 1994. And I remember my parents said something to me that I'm sure your parents have said to you, right? You get in the car trip, you're packing up all the stuff's in the back, and you're sitting in the seat with your sibling, and mom or dad, whoever's the planner in your family, sits down and they look at you like with the door still open before they shut them, right? It's like you're a NASA pilot about to go into space, and they're like, okay, we're about to seal the doors and stir the oxygen tanks, okay? Let's go over. Do you have your music player, right? Do you have a book? Do you have your blanket? Do you have your stuffed teddy bear? Do you have some snacks? Do you have your water bottle, right? Do you have your medicine? Do you have a flamethrower? Like what? They're just going over everything you could possibly need for the road trip. Why? Because it's a long journey. And there are these things you're going to need to make sure you make it through that journey well, this long obedience in the same direction. And this is what Paul is about to do is he turns the page from chapter 3 into chapter 4. He's going to move from this theological truth into this ethical truth where he's going to start saying, here are some things you're going to need along the way if you are someone who's a Christ follower, who's going to be living a long obedience in the same direction. There's some things that we need to put on and pack on and make sure we have for the road trip. And so as we jump in and try to hear a very practical message from Paul's teaching today, I want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to make us teachable here today. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you love life. I'm just, I'm reminded today that, that your life must be full of joy, that as the God of the universe, you can go anywhere in the universe and see anything you want to. You get to just experience the beauty of creation. You get to enjoy all the possible music on Spotify at one time, that you just get to see everything that's true and beautiful and good all the time, and you get to celebrate and enjoy that. And I'm thankful that here today in our fellowship, we get to celebrate and enjoy you uh, as the sovereign Lord of our creation. And so as we sit down and make ourselves teachable before your word, would you give us a sense of joy that comes in the Christian life, that long obedience in the same direction? Would you help us to get a sense of joy as we need to put on certain virtues and values? Would you give us a sense of joy in the journey as we strive to be um, loving one another and bearing with one another in all unity? Would you help us give a, get a clearer picture uh, of what it means to be a follower of you? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is but one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me stop there. I want you guys to notice a few things here today, and here's how I'm going to break apart this text. Um, in chapters one through three, it's very theological. It's very information heavy. There's a lot of content. And in case you're ever teaching through the book of Ephesians or any of Paul's letters in a Bible study, in a life group, or in a one-on-one discipleship setting or something like that, um, when you're teaching through the theological content, um, it's, it's one of these things where you need to teach and explain, and then the burden is on you as the communicator to try to make application as you go, right? Because it's just like, do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, over and over and over again. And you're like, okay, well, here's how this works in your world. Once Paul flips to the application component, however, it's very easy to make application. So I don't have a big burden today to make a lot of application. Paul's going to do that for me. So what I'm going to do is walk through sequentially some things I want us to notice here Uh, and try to help us understand how truth undergirds the application that he's wanting to make. Does that make sense? You guys good with where we're going? Okay, let's jump in. All right. Sorry. Some of you are like, that's enough, Doug. We get it. Just go ahead and teach the word, buddy. All right. Here we go. So four things I want you to notice here. Learn your bulletins if you have it. Number one, I want you to notice, Paul says that you, if you're a believer in Christ, you're part of a calling. You are part of a calling. Now, what does this mean? A calling is basically, in terms of how Paul's talking about it, a calling you can think of as like a tribe or a fellowship. Uh, It's a group of people. When he uses that term, he says, yeah, there is this particular calling that's on your life as a follower of, of Christ, but that calling has both individual and collective ramifications. Individually, it means something, but it also means something collectively. And so let me talk about it in turns. Let's let's talk about it individually. So individually, you, if you're following Christ here today, you're part of a calling. Um, And he says, walk in this manner that's worthy of this calling. Um, You are called, and you have been called to be a servant. Paul says prisoner for the Lord here, but um, elsewhere he's going to use the term bondservant. You are a bondservant of Jesus. That's your calling. That's your identity now. That's who you are. You're someone who uh, is, in a sense, not a colonial slave, but kind of a Middle Eastern understanding of a slave to Jesus. What Jesus says is what you do. He is master. You are the bondservant. And I don't know if you realize this, but when you prayed to receive Christ and when you, when you began to follow Jesus and believed in Jesus, you took on the calling and the identity and the attitude of a servant. And um, I, I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate what this looks like, but uh, I, keep, I always go back to this one film. In 2002, there's a guy named uh, Kevin Reynolds who graduated from Baylor University, sick and bears. Um, and uh, that's my alma mater if you didn't know that. Uh, and Kevin Reynolds uh, did this film called The Count of Monte Cristo. It was a film adaptation of the book. Uh, or for those of you in high school who didn't like to read, it's the, uh, it's the film that that book was based off of, right? Um, and so it stars uh, Jim Cavazell, who later played Jesus, which makes the scene really meta and interesting. Uh, but he plays The Count of Monte Cristo. And in the scene you're about to watch, it's the beach scene. It's a famous scene in this film. The main character, Edmund Dantes, is on this beach. He, he escapes from this uh, uh, prison in France called the Chateau d'If, and he escapes and he finds land, and he's just so thankful he's found land, but he hears this noise, and he looks over, and there's this group of pirates, and they're fighting over there. And so he kind of wanders over, and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And one of the pirates talks to him and says, um, hey, here's the deal. There's this guy we caught um, he's a really bad dude. He's really good with a knife. And um, basically, you know, we were going to kill him or we we're going to do something here. But here's, here's the idea. Why don't you guys fight each other? 
Um, and if you win, you can kill them and you can join our crew. Basically, this is like this very ancient French gang scene where they're jumping them into this gang. Anyway, so they, they set up this thing where, uh, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo and this one guy, they're going to fight each other uh, to the death. And whoever wins gets to join the crew of the pirate crew and gets to make money in their enterprise. That's basically the situation. And so Edmond Dantes starts to fight this guy. Uh, and what no one knows is that Edmond Dantes, uh, when he was in Chateau d'If, was basically in like a Batman training protocol. It was like a, you know, a Renaissance French Batman training protocol where there's this old guy who was like teaching him like karate and ninja skills and... Uh, nunchuck skills and all these other things. And among the things, it was like knife skills. Like he like downloaded the matrix into his brain and can like use a knife. So no one knows that, but Edmond Dantes knows that. And so Edmond Dantes goes in in this knife fight and beats the guy handedly, like really quickly. Gets him on the, the dirt, like completely has him beaten. And all the pirates are thinking, oh, you're gonna kill this guy. And Edmond Dantes decides, I'm not gonna kill this guy. I'm gonna let this guy live and I'm gonna show him mercy. And so all the pirates are like, okay, I guess that's fine. We'll have two people aboard and we can make more money. And at the very end of this scene, after Edmund Dantes has shown this guy mercy, as Edmund Dantes has saved this guy from what was going to be his death, this guy he's just beaten looks up at him and gives this beautiful picture of what a bond servant says to Jesus, any bond servant at the moment they're saved. And so I want you to watch this scene right here. <laughs> I swear on my dead relatives, even on the ones that are not feeling too good, I am your man forever. I know. Right? So he says, I am your man forever. And if you've seen the film, if you've read the book, for the remainder of the story, that guy is his right-hand man the whole time. Edmond Dantes wants something, that guy goes and gets it done. Edmond Dantes needs this, that guy goes and gets it done. He does all of his master's bidding for the remainder. And it's not like there's this contract relationship where Edmond Dantes is like, well, listen, hey, you're, you've kind of been slacking. Here's your 360 review. I really need you to pick up here. Remember, your bonus is tied to this. There's none of that. It's just, I'm with you. You don't pay me. I'm with you. I know you'll take care of me. I'm with you. What Paul is saying is, when you start to follow Jesus and you walk in this manner worthy of the calling, the type of calling that's over us individually is we are bond servants to Jesus. And whatever he says, we're with him. That's the individual aspect of our calling. But there's also a collective aspect to this calling. And it's this. Everybody who's an individual bond servant of Jesus gets to be in this tribe or in this fellowship together all of us are bondservants. We are all going through the same journey together with Jesus. We're all experiencing this struggle of trying to follow this master. He's not hard to follow, but we sometimes struggle with the following. We're all part of this at the same time. It's this collective experience of us being bondservants to Jesus. And so we form this calling, this group. And interestingly, uh, I, I thought about this when I thought about the collective nature of this. Um, if you know anything about the history of Christianity, and I'm going to talk a lot about the history of Christianity uh, today, uh, just because I think it's fascinating. But there are these groups that started to form under this idea of a calling, uh, really in the, between the 3rd and the 5th centuries, and they were called uh, monastic communities, or uh, if you ever heard somebody who's described as a monk, right? Have you ever, anybody ever seen a monk or know what a monk is? I'm not talking about Monk, the USA TV show where he solves crime. I'm talking about like monastic communities, right? Okay. So you have the Franciscans and Benedictines and all these people who would, would join these religious communities. Uh, basically what happened 4th century, 5th century is uh, as urban centers of the world started to decay, there was a lot of pestilence, not a lot of sewage situation going on, like they didn't have sewer systems. And so like when one person got the 24-hour stomach bug, everybody died. That's how it worked then. So these people would leave the city area and they would try to escape to these rural areas and they would join together. All these Christians would join together and they would typically have some type of identified leader and that leader would disciple them in a particular uh, value system. And that was the monastic leader and they were a monastic community and they built libraries and they built all these places and eventually these monastic communities became what you guys know today as universities. Uh, that's why the University of Alabama is in Tuscaloosa and nothing else is in Tuscaloosa, right? Because it was just a monastic community of Alabamans. No, it really didn't work that way. But in Europe, it worked this way, right? So 
Monastic communities always operated under something called a rule of order or a rule of life. Meaning the monastic leader, the chief discipler of this group of people would say, we're going to follow Jesus according to these four or five value systems. Um, we're, th- these are the four or five things that are going to dictate the way that we are going to live uh, as this collective community, as this people who live under the calling. And this idea here that monastic communities practice, this is actually a tradition that starts with Paul. Paul is actually speaking of something very similar today. He's saying, Christians, I want you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling of Jesus, the worthy of the calling, right? As bond servants, you're going to walk in a way that's worthy of this calling. And he's about to give us uh, a few virtues or values that are part of this monastic community that we all find ourselves in as we're being discipled unto Jesus. And so he's going to speak to that next. So the first thing notice, you're part of a calling. Number two, this calling is a journey. The calling is a journey. It's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And because this is going to be a journey, because this calling, he says we're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of this. And the idea of walking here is, you know, in that time period, you're walking on a road between cities. And Paul would use this term walk. And in fact, in Ephesians says walk several times as a command. Walk in this way, walk in this way, walk in this way. Well, the idea of a walk is like these two dudes just like walking between cities talking about something. If you look at the life of Jesus, when he's with the disciples... They'll walk between cities and they'll just talk for 10 miles. Uh, Just chat up about everything in life and love and happiness and all these things. And Paul's picking up on this idea. He's saying this calling that you're in, it's this journey. It's you're you're in between these destinations and you're having a conversation. And because it's a journey, guess what? There are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. There are going to be narrow pathways. There are going to be wide pathways. There are going to be detours. There are going to be pit stops. There are going to be everything you might expect on a journey, on a road trip, right? At some point, someone's going to have to go to the bathroom, and one of the persons in the party is going to be like, we can't stop now. We're making good time, right? You're going to have that moment. Some of you in here are like, I'm the one who has to go to the bathroom all the time on the road trips. And some of you are like, I'm the one who never wants to stop, right? So I bring extra Gatorade bottles, and I'm just like, we're not stopping, right? We're just keeping going on this road. See, everyone who just laughed, those are the Gatorade people right there, right? So just be forewarned if they're like, hey, I got an idea. Let's go to Miami. Just know there's going to be some weird Gatorade stuff going on in that car. Anyway. So as you guys know, on road trips, like there's just all of these things, right? It's a, it's a wide variety of the human experience on a journey. And that's, that's something Paul wants to communicate here subtly. This, this long obedience in the same direction, this calling that we're individually and collectively a part of, it's a journey. There are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be wide roads and narrow roads and detours and all these things we don't see coming. That's all normal. And I don't know where you guys are today in following Jesus, but maybe you're having a good week and you're like, man, I love this. That good week is not abnormal from the journey of following Jesus. Or maybe you're here today and you're having a bad week. And I want you to know that bad week is not abnormal in following Jesus. It's normal. And maybe you're having a a situation where you feel like you're on a narrow path and no one's with you. And guess what? That's a normal part of the process. Or maybe you feel like everybody's coming with you and you're like, oh, I'm kind of scared. Is this group think? I don't know what's going on. And I'm telling you, listen, it's not group think. It's a normal part of the journey. It's a journey. It's long. It's going to take a lot of obedience in the same direction. But Paul wants to understand this calling, it's a journey calling. Or it's a calling journey. It's something we're on together. And that's the third thing I want us to understand. You're part of a calling. The calling's a journey. And our calling journey is lived out with at least two virtues. Paul's finally going to get into this idea of the thing that holds our monastic community together, our way of life, our rule of order. And he says there's two things that we can think of uh, on this journey. Uh, Paul says... I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Paul, what is that manner that's worthy of the calling? What does it look like? He says this in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So let's talk about that. It's lived out with two virtues. The first one I want to mention here, highlight, is gentleness. Gentleness. Paul says we're walking with humility and gentleness. Some scholars think that those are two different terms, humility, gentleness. Uh, some say they're two terms that are communicating the same idea. I tend to think those are two terms communicating the same idea, and here's the idea. It's sensitivity and kindness from a position of strength. 
Gentleness means sensitivity and kindness from a position of strength. Gentleness is not from a position of weakness. Uh, sometimes in popular culture, when you talk about being gentle, you know, you have those macho guys who are like, oh, I'm not gentle, I'm a, I'm a man, right? Because what they're actually recoiling against is this idea of weakness. I'm a man, I don't want to appear weak here, right? Uh, but gentleness is actually, another term to think about is the term meekness. Meekness means strength under control, right? So gentleness is this idea of kindness, just dripping with kindness, but from a position of strength, not of weakness. And I was trying to think of like a way to describe this and why this value is so important. I mean, I don't know if you ever thought about that, why gentleness and humility are such important virtues and values for the Christian life. Uh, And the only thing I could think of was... um, and this seems really weird, but my wife and I have been having this long conversation over our marriage because about once a year, you know, she's a girl, right, my wife? Uh, about once a year, she has to go to these girl doctor visits, right? Guys, if you don't have any girl, like if you grew up with all brothers, you don't know about this, but I'm gonna try to educate you on your sisters in Christ here, just so you guys know. But like once a year, girls have to go to these girl doctor visits, right? And um, when you hear two girls talk about their girl doctor visits, because for some reason girls are like, oh, you go to a girl doctor? Which one's yours? I don't know if I like mine. Let me see if I can go to yours, right? And there's this whole thing that goes on and guys hear this at parties and they're like, I, I shouldn't be here, like, <laughs> right? You're, you're, you're like the kid who walks into the R-rated movie and you're like, I, this is not for me. I gotta go outside, this is weird, right? But girls will just talk openly about this stuff. Girls, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you, the extroverts, the introverts are like, I feel awkward right now, uh, right? But th- this will happen. I heard this for uh, like 10 years of our marriage. She would, they, they would have the same conversation. And you know if you've heard this, because girls will say to each other, they'll be like, oh, who's your doctor? And like, oh, this is my doctor. And they'll, they'll always follow up with this question. It's the only diagnostic question when you're talking about a girl doctor. Is she gentle, right? And that's what they'll say. Is she gentle? And they're like, oh, so gentle. It's like, okay, cool. I want to check her out because my doctor is not gentle. And you're like, as a guy, I'm telling you, when you hear this stuff, you're like, oh, like that's, that's all you can do. But I'm telling you for 10 years, like she would have this conversation just blatantly in front of me. And I would just be like, I cannot unhear that. Oh my gosh. Uh. Right. And I just would make fun of her. I would pull her aside and be like, Natalie, you cannot talk about that stuff in the presence of others. Right. Like we are Baptist. That is mixed company stuff. Like we don't swim together with guys and girls. We don't dance together. And we don't talk about girl doctor visits. Like that's just, we don't do this. Well, it was all fun and games until about a year ago, I had uh, a situation in my own self, right? Uh, I got something called a hernia uh, and it was a congenital thing. Um, where guys at the age of 35, they just have this thing where they get these hernias in very sensitive places, and it was painful. It was super painful. So I'm now having a Google search or, you know, Bing search or whatever for guy doctors that are the equivalent of girl doctors. And I found one, and I was like, Natalie, I think I'm going to go to this one. Like, you know, do you think I've done enough research? Like, he gets good Yelp reviews and, like, rated really highly on the medical boards, whatever. And she goes, Doug, there's only one question you got to ask. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so I'm going into this doctor's office, and I'm talking to the lady up front. I'm like, oh, yeah, Hankins, first name. Uh, my first name is James. And so I'm like, hey, James, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, my first name's James. Did you guys not know that? That's what you got out of this story? I'm talking about this, and you're like, your first name's James? Um, yes, I'm a junior. My dad is James Douglas Hankins Sr. I'm James Douglas Hankins Jr. My son, James Douglas Hankins III, right? That's how we roll in the Hankins family. Is that good with you guys? Cool. Can I proceed with the story? Okay, cool. So I'm, in, I'm just messing with you. I love all of you people. Y'all are my favorite. So I walk into this office, and I'm filling that out, and she's like, okay, do you have any questions? And I'm like, yeah. Um, <laughs> This is, this is a, this, like, there's an exam here today. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, uh, the only question I have, my, my wife wanted me to ask this, but is he a gentle doctor or the non-gentle doctor? And she just like, cause she hears this all the time. She's like, he's a gentle doctor. And I was like, okay, good. And let me tell you, after that exam, I, wa- I walked home and I was like, Natalie, I have a new level of respect for you, right? Like this was my Vietnam. I understand now. <laughs> What's going on? So now whenever she's having those conversations, I'm like, oh, girl, get the gentle doctor, right? <laughs> like, you know, because it's, it's not a girl versus guy thing. You walk in, you want to make sure they don't have man hands, right? It's like, yes, yeah, sorry, I've been pipe welding over here and I have, 
you know, all calluses on my hands. So let's start this thing. You're like, no, 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 no. That's a bad idea, right? Because here's the thing. Seriously, here's the thing. When you have really sensitive things going on in you, you want someone to be gentle around you, right? Listen, in the Christian life, when you have sensitive things going on in your life, you want other Christians to be gentle with you, right? When you, there's nothing worse than going to a life group on a crappy day and you get to prayer request time and you're like, God, should I be vulnerable right now? I don't know if I trust these guys completely. Oh, okay, right? And you go out and you, you just kind of are vulnerable before people and you're just hoping if you ping this across, they'll ping back in love. And you have that one idiot in your group who doesn't get social cues or whatever and is like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right? You ever had one of those times when you bare your soul before like a friend, maybe it's a one-on-one situation or you're in a life group or whatever, and someone just is not gentle with you and you are just like, you're, you're like, just keep it together. I'm going to be okay. And then as soon as like they break apart for prayer time, you just go to your car and cry, right? Because someone was not gentle towards you in their words, in their action, in their disposition. When you have sensitive stuff going on in your life, you need a gentle brother or sister around you. And so you want to be the kind of friend that your friends need. And Paul is saying this. Hey, in the Christian life, we have ups and we have downs. We have good weeks and we have bad weeks. And you never know where someone's coming from. And a lot of the time, if people are trembling just a little bit before they talk to us in life group situations or in one-on-ones, they need a gentle response. They need a gentle disposition. They need someone who's going to ease into things. And Paul's saying, One of the things, brothers and sisters, on this journey, in this calling that we're a part of, we've got to put on gentleness because gentleness is going to help be soothing to a brother or sister who's in need. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We need patience. We need patience. Patience is defined as the capacity to tolerate suffering without getting upset. The capacity to tolerate suffering without getting upset. So patience is not necessarily something you just have or you don't. It's actually something, it's a capacity. There's kind of a general thing you can start with, but you can grow in it, you can shrink in it. And here's the bad news about patience. Patience is something you learn by doing. In other words, if you pray to God for patience, the way he's going to help you grow in your patience is to give you trying situations where you're going to have to practice patience, right? Anyone who's ever prayed for patience, you know you immediately get shuffled into this frustrating situation and you're like, oh, I don't have this. Why are you forcing me to practice this? Well, because that's how it works. It's a capacity and it's a capacity for tolerating suffering uh, without, tolerating suffering without getting upset. So, just, I just listed five things you could do here just as I was taking notes. It's like, huh, how can we practice patience? So here are just some ways I think if today, this week, really impractically, you wanted to go practice patience. Number one, go sit in a waiting room of the doctor's office, right? Right? Go sit in the waiting room and just be like, hey, I'm here to see the doctor and I'm a walk-in. Like, don't have an appointment. Yeah, you're going to practice patience, right? You sit in there and you walk up. You're like, how much longer? They're like, uh, 15 minutes. And you're like, okay. And then you sit down and then like an hour goes by and you're like, how much longer? And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, 15 minutes. And you're like, mm, right? Yeah, go practice patience. Number two, take your car to the mechanic. Yeah, I'm sorry for any mechanics in here. I love you guys. Y'all are awesome. It's just, it's job batch processing and kind of the workflow of things. It just always breaks down, Murphy's Law, whatever. But you take your car to the mechanic. They're like, yeah, we'll call you after two. And then like four weeks later, uh, at six, when you're at something else, they're like, hey, your car's ready. And you're like, oh, but that whole time you're just like, I literally can't drive everywhere. I'm having an Uber, right? Uh, okay. Anyway, I love you mechanics. My father-in-law's mechanic. I love you mechanics. Okay. Number three, order something online and have it shipped to your house, right? We're going to give you a tracking number. And you're like, oh, okay. I see the game we're playing right here. You constantly refresh it. It's like in transit. Like, it's made it to the Orlando location. It's made it. Can I go to this Orlando location? They're like, no, 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 no. We still need to send it out for delivery. When are you going to do that? We're working on it, pal. Why don't you calm down? It's in transit. It's like, right? You'll practice patience. Number four, 
Join any small group, <laughs> right? Join any small group. You wanna know why? Because you have lots of different personalities in a small group. Maybe you're an introvert, maybe you're an extrovert, but it doesn't matter because you're always gonna have one to two people who love to talk. No matter what, they gotta talk. Some of you are in that room or in this room right now. You are the talkers. And you're like, you're sitting there and you're just like, ask me a question. I got something to say, irrelated to this topic. Just ask me this question. I can't wait to talk about this. You're like, oh man, I was looking on the message boards. I got a new fan theory on Harry Potter. Ooh, first question is theological in nature. I'm talking about this, right? You may be on the other side of that and you're just like, why is this person talking so much? The question is, what is your name? And they're now talking about the office and their enneotypes. It's just, what's your name? Just answer, what is your name, right? Guess what? You're practicing patience. The fifth one is this. Go on any mission trip. Go on any mission trip. And there will be awkward moments, right? Especially if you Airbnb together in a place, right? Because you take a whole bunch of people, you put them into a dorm situation, and it gets real. And then, right, generally there's one bathroom and there's 12 of you, right? And everybody has to go to the bathroom at the same time. And you're just like, you're having this calculus moment with the bathroom where you're like, uh, I kind of want to go because I need to. Like, I feel like I'll die if I don't. But I definitely know that guy's in there, and I don't want to be follow-up to that situation. So can I Uber to a Starbucks right now just to use the restroom? Where's the nearest Starbucks? Dunkin' Donuts? Is it in a gas station? No? Okay, I'll risk it, right? I mean, and you're just having to practice patience. Hey, listen, patience is something you're going to have to have. It, it's a critical component, though as we're gonna see in just a little bit. Patience with gentleness, it's a critical component. So the, three, the virtues that we're gonna need are gentleness and patience. Paul continues, but these virtues, number four observation, these virtues redirect us towards two crucial practices. Both gentleness, kindness, humility, and patience redirect us towards two crucial practices. And the first one is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. See, here's the thing. The reason Paul tells us that these two virtues are going to be crucial on this road trip that we're on is because when we practice them, they actually have an effect. Once we practice them, by virtue of practicing them, just by virtue of practicing patience in a small group when that person's talking, just by virtue of practicing gentleness when you're talking to someone and having communication, just having to go through that mental and physical practice is redirecting you towards some really important things. And the first one is how to bear one another's burdens in love. It's impossible to bear one another's burdens in love without practicing gentleness. And it's impossible to bear one another's burdens in love without patience. And when you find yourself having to bear one another's burdens in love, when someone says something really challenging and you're like, oh man, I need to help them bear this burden, the two things you will probably muster up first are gentleness and patience. Because you're like, in order to do that, I need both of those. And I just want to point out a cross-reference here that's really interesting. When you do weddings, uh, typically, typically there's one or two passages that you'll read at a wedding, like if you're a pastor officiating the wedding. And one of them is 1 Corinthians 13, Right? And it starts with love is, and it says this, love is, and love is, patience, gentleness. The way that love behaves is it's first patient, and then it's kind. Remember, gentleness is kindness. Gentleness is like a kindness from a position of strength. And Paul is saying this, the way that love naturally demonstrates itself is in patience and kindness. So when he's calling us to practice patience and kindness, he's actually calling us to do something which is going to redirect us back to love. And love is necessary if we're going to be bearing one another's burdens. The second virtue redirect that he's going to redirect us towards is the practice of unity. Unity. Paul says that Jesus, remember, is working all things together for unity. At the very end of chapter one, he says everything that's happening is happening that you will achieve unity. Unity is, is defined as not only being all together in the same thing, but it's also defined as uh, kind of the fullness of our sanctification. At the very end of chapter three, he says it's the fullness of God. Remember, it's that, it's that thing that we gradually order our lives around until it's sustainable and practical. We talked about this last week. We all have that one friend who gets really into that one topic way too much, and it starts off with just a little habit, and by the end of it, it's full-blown habit. And we all have that one friend who likes Harry Potter or that one friend who likes The Office or that one friend who likes that TV show on Netflix. And 
again, they start off, they're like, man, I really like Harry Potter. And then they get a universal pass. And then, right, they're constantly wearing their, like, you know, house kind of coat of arms on their T-shirts and, you know, their Team Gryffindor or whatever. And they've got the, like, hood thing and they've got their wand and they drink butter beer and they start carving initial, like, lightning bolts in their forehead. And you're like, wow, this is getting really extreme. Like, it started as you just really like the books and then now we're getting tattoos, self-tattoos. This is really kind of crazy, right? Every one of them comes over to your house and is like, can I, can I live in the closet underneath your stairs? You know, the storm shelter hurricane thing in every Florida home. Right? And that, that gradually their whole life is ordered around this thing. And, and this is what Paul is saying is this is unity, this is fullness, this is spiritual maturity. And now in chapter four, he's connecting the dots. If we don't practice patience, if we don't practice gentleness, we are not going to be able to as easily attain unity. But if we will commit ourselves to practicing patience and practicing gentleness, we will not only find that we are loving one another and bearing one another's burdens, those two virtues, when practiced regularly, will move us towards unity. It'll bring everything uh, together for us. And we get, we get how this works, actually, if you think about it. It makes logical sense. Uh, so let me just, can I introduce you guys to like counseling 101? Now, I'm not a, I didn't get a master's in psychology or in counseling, that, but I'm just talking like practical, just kind of ministry counseling. So maybe counseling's not the term. I'll just say ministry one-on-one. If you're doing one-on-one ministry, here, I just want to let you in on a little secret. You probably are aware of this. And if this applies to your family, I'm sorry about this, but I, I want to just speak truth to you. Okay. So we all have those friends who grew up in drama-filled homes, right? Dysfunctional homes. I grew up in one of those for sure. Like you just grew up in drama and drama was around them all the time. When they start to tell you their story, you kind of involuntarily do the big eye thing where you're trying to just play it cool and practice gentleness, but you can't because they're like, and then this happened in my life. And you're like, oh my goodness, right? And they're like, oh, but that was just the start of all these things. And you're like, oh my goodness, right? And they talk about all the drama that they come from. And you start to notice these, you connect these dots, right? Um, oftentimes people who grow up in drama-filled households, they grow up in drama. That drama becomes normal for them such that they're only comfortable around drama. And so when you have people who grew up in drama and are comfortable around drama and drama is their normal, whenever they're uncomfortable moving forward, they will create drama so that they can be comfortable, right? Now think about people you know like that. Maybe that's you and maybe this is a self-awareness moment. Um, We'll pray that God does something with this, but, but you can know this is true. Like people, everything's going well. They got a new job. They're like, man, I got this new job. I'm adulting, right? I'm paying my bills, right? I'm driving on I-4, no wrecks, right? Like, you know, like I, I can just, I can handle myself. I'm doing this and things are going well. And then just one day they call you and they're crying and you're like, what happened? They're like, I went into work and I quit. And I told my boss, he was an idiot. And he could shove it. And then I drove down I-4 and I was like changing lanes without signaling. And you're like, what is going on? Like, I thought we were adulting here and they can't describe it, right? They just have a need to create drama around them, right? Drama is the opposite of unity. People who are walking in unity increasingly leave the drama behind because they're aware that they're creating this drama. And they say, ah, what Jesus wants for me is something wholly different. It's this life free of drama. But with those two things clear, unity and drama, I want you to notice something. Gentleness and patience will move us towards unity. Impatience and roughness, non-gentleness, will always move us back towards drama. And anybody who's ever been in a relationship and like it was a good relationship or it was a bad relationship knows this to be true. Maybe friendships, maybe dating relationships, whatever. If you have like a boyfriend, girlfriend, right, who is incredibly impatient but tells you they love you, right, you're gonna be like, mm-mm, mm-mm, that does not work. Because it's like, hey, I love you, but we have to go now. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like first date, they're like, listen, I love you, but if you don't get in the car right now, we're gonna be late for this thing. You're like, those two things don't work together. And you are creating some drama right here. Like, mm-mm, we are not having this moment right now. Impatience stirs up drama. And people who are impatient consistently are the kind of people who consistently create drama in their life and other lives. Patience moves us towards unity. The same thing is true with the gentleness kind of aggressiveness dynamic. If you've ever been in a relationship where someone's just aggressive all the time, you know it's like, 
You sit down at Starbucks, and you're like, hey, what do you want to drink? I want a coffee. I'll get a coffee, too. You both get coffees. You take a sip, and you're like, ah, oh, this is calming. They take a sip, and they're like, yeah, I'm jacked up now. And you're like, whoa. Like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde just happened right here. And you're like, so what do you want to do? I want to watch a movie now. We got to go watch a movie now. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? And you're like, yeah, I hate this Starbucks. It's the worst. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, you just have one of those reflexes where you're like, there is so much drama right now. We were just having coffee. Next time you're getting decaf. Like, this is just, we're not doing this anymore. Why? Because aggressiveness, constant aggressiveness creates drama. But gentleness will move you towards unity. Think about this. You, if you've been in relationships where people practice uh, patience and, and gentleness, right? You sit down at Starbucks and you're having a bad day. And you're like, I'm having a bad day. And they're like, I'm so sorry. Tell me about this, right? They move to the lower register voice. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Tell me about your day. And you're like, ooh, even though I just had caffeine, I'm feeling surprisingly calm right now, right? We're moving towards unity. Or people who are patient with you. We all have those moments where we just need to cry, right? We just have a bad day. We just got back from the doctor and it wasn't a gentle doctor, right? And you're just like, oh, it was bad. I got to talk about this. And your friends are like, I'm so sorry. Like, just, can we just cry together wearing like Snuggies and eating kettle corn and just talk about this? And you're like, I feel so loved right now. Like my heart is full. Why? Because patience moves us towards unity. Gentleness moves us towards love. You cannot practice those two virtues, virtues without also bearing one another's burdens and without walking in unity. I wanna end by telling you guys this story just to kind of seal this up a little bit. I'm switching straws into the chai tea latte here. Here we go. Um, so I want to talk uh, for a lot about uh, alcoholism and prohibition. So um, get ready for the 1800s. So um, if you've ever done this uh, study of prohibition uh, and how prohibition came around in America, it's really interesting. And there's a couple of figures in this that stand out to me because the contrast between the two indicates everything or illustrates what Paul's talking about here. And so let me start with kind of how prohibition works. Prohibition uh, and really alcoholism, rampant alcoholism is a systemic social problem, happens in two main areas in America in the 1800s, in the, in the farmlands, in the agrarian society, uh, and then in the urban centers much later in the 1800s. In the early part of the 1800s, let me tell you some fun facts. And hey, I'm about to talk about alcohol. So if you're under 21, don't do anything I'm about to tell you to do. If you're over 21, you probably should really not do anything I'm about to tell you to do. Uh, but please don't walk away from here and go, college pastor at First Orlando at the table said, I can drink alcohol, uh, mom and dad, so here we go, right? Be gentle, be patient, you know, you'll be 21 soon, and then you can think about that, but I'm not saying you should drink alcohol. I'm backing away from that statement right now. There's, okay. <laughs> so uh, basically, as predominantly German farmers, German immigrants come to America, and they settle in the Midwest, uh, Michigan, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee, and some of these places. Um, German immigrants had this very interesting tradition of drinking cider. Now, I'm talking about alcoholic cider, hard cider, which you would call it today. Hard cider has a pretty low alcohol content situation going on, okay, um, by comparison to other things. It's uh, of alcoholic beverages. Maybe beer is a little bit less, but cider doesn't have much of an alcoholic uh, presence, although it does have some alcohol in it. Again, 18-year-olds, I'm not telling you to go drink cider later, okay? Don't go to Ale House and be like, pastor said I should have the cider, please. Thank you. You don't need to see my ID. Don't do that, okay? Be cool. So what German farmers would do is they would, um, the trip, typically their, their habit was they would wake up and they would drink cider for breakfast, a glass of cider. And then they would go harvest in the fields and do, you know, agriculture stuff. Come home at lunch, right? Drink a cider at lunch, go back and work in the fields, come home, drink a cider for dinner. Uh, the sun would go down and they would go to sleep. And this was how the average American German farmer would operate in the 1800s, right? So that's their pattern. Well, again, towards the back half of the 1800s, these new things called distilleries found ways to make a stronger drink, whiskey, for example. And they had a very strong advertising arm of getting whiskey out to everybody, including the American farmer. And the way that some historians have kind of described it is, imagine the same German farmer uh, replaced one glass of cider, which is a very low alcoholic content, with a glass of whiskey, which is a very high alcohol content by comparison. And so what would happen is that the American farmer would wake up and drink a glass of whiskey at breakfast. And then would go into the fields. And then he would come home and drink a glass of whiskey at lunch. And then he would take a nap and not go into the fields in the afternoon. 
And then he would wake up from his kind of drunken stupor and he would drink a glass of whiskey at night and then become an abusive husband in the evening. And this happened over and over and over again. And these farmers who used to be quite productive were now becoming abusive, alcoholics. They were mean to their wives. They were mean to their families. And many of them were Christians who went to churches. And so these guys would dry up to go to church on Sunday. You can imagine their wife and their kids, the toll it took on them. They would show up at church and they would just be kind of, you know, sober and kind of having a hangover to get through the sermon. And then they would leave and they would go back and begin again in their alcohol tradition of drinking whiskey, right? And so the farm is cutting back in its uh, production yield. And so moms and kids are having to learn farming techniques just to make the farm work. There's a lot of bankruptcy situations and alcoholism, again, is a systemic social problem started to wipe out much of the farmland uh, in the Midwest in America in the mid to late part, later part of the 1800s. Well, that's what's happening in the rural situation. And pastors by and large did not know what to do about this because in seminaries, they didn't train you like, okay, when your uh, congregation of farmers comes uh, to church drunk, Here's step one. Like they don't have that, right? So pastors are just like, I don't know what to do. And they're trying to side with the wife, but they're trying to honor the husband and wives are sticking together with their husbands, but it's a really bad situation. And it, it, it's just really kind of a terrible thing. That's happening in the countryside. Meanwhile, in the urban situation, most of the people who are living in the urban environment, specifically in the back half of the 1800s, they're coming home from something called the Civil War. Ever heard of that? Yes, the bloodiest conflict in American history, right? And all these guys are coming home, and many of them, we can look back now and think most of them are struggling with PTSD and all of these psychological issues, except there are no psychological concepts with which to interpret their situations going on. And so a vast majority of these men coming home from the Civil War help medicate themselves and get through their situation by drinking. And in particular, doctors in the cities would regularly prescribe whiskey as something that they could drink to help them get through their situation. And so now you have all of these ex-war vets living in urban environments, drinking whiskey all the time to get through their demons, and they're becoming abusive to their wives and abusive to their children, and it's the same situation. Women are now having to go into the workforce and earn money to take care of the home because the dad is blowing all the money on alcohol and he's being abusive. Kids are out working. Kids are becoming orphans. Families are falling apart. It's a systemic, terrible situation. And many of these people, who, many of these men who are drunk and who are dealing with substantial mental health issues, they're Christians and they're drying up to go to church on Sunday. And these pastors in the city, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to deal with this widespread ep epidemic. And so it's very interesting the pastors are actually people who aren't practicing gentleness because gentleness is kindness from a position of strength. And they're trying to, to practice passivity from a position of weakness. And guess what? Love is not a passive thing. Love is an active thing. And so these guys are all passive and they're just allowing and permitting some of this stuff to go on. They're not at minimum just trying to step in and go, what's going on and figure this out. Now, some pastors are doing this, but by and large, no one knows what to do. And so this unique hero emerges from this rubble in American history. And do you know who it is? It's the American housewife. And these women would get together in these Bible studies and they begin praying for their husbands and for their neighbor's friends and neighbor's husbands who are... Um, alcoholics for these farmers and for all these people. And they said, we've got to do something about this problem of alcoholism. And so these women banded together and they formed something called these temperance movements. In fact, the first one was called the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union was this group of women who said, we think alcoholism is a problem and we think it's a problem on biblical grounds. And so we're going to try to figure out a way to lobby the government to make alcohol illegal as the first step in trying to help us solve this problem of alcoholism. Because if you cut off the alcohol, the men will get sober and maybe we can get back to normal. And so by and large, these women moved this, this ball forward in this issue. They stepped up. The first president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was a lady named Ann Wittenmeyer, who was a, a member of a Methodist church. Her husband died 10 years into their marriage and she was a widow. And she was like, man, I see this alcoholism widespread. I have this time on my hands. And so because of Jesus, I'm gonna organize all these ladies together and we're gonna fight uh, to make uh, alcohol as uh, unavailable as possible or less readily available in America. And so she starts fighting in 1873. And in January of 1920, the 18th Amendment passes. So you can do the math there. 
her fight and the struggle of all of these Christian wives, these Christian women who on biblical grounds said, we're going to protest this, actually leads to the 18th Amendment being passed, and now there's prohibition in America. And it's very interesting how these women chose to protest, if you go back and look over it. There are two things which marked their protesting more than anything else, these two virtues. They were gentle, and as the timeline shows you, they were patient. And because they were gentle, they were not abrasive, they were from a position of strength, but they were very kind. If you see them, they were always kindly protesting, trying to raise the awareness of this issue. And because they were patient, it didn't have to happen in 19, or 1874 or 1880 or 1890. It was okay to happen in 1920. Because they put both of these virtues together, America began to deal with its alcoholism problem, first by starting prohibition, 13 years later by repealing prohibition. But after they repealed prohibition, they launched this new thing called psychology. And psychological endeavors and counseling and these kind of things became more and more part of the social fabric of America, such that people like war veterans and farmers who are struggling with alcoholism could get the help that they need so that families could return to stability. Now, here's the question I ask. What would have happened if these Christians had protested violently? Or what would have happened if they had demanded for their cause to be heard immediately? Where would our country be and where would the problem of alcoholism be? I would imagine it probably uh, would still be something we are struggling with or it would have been delayed uh, much, much later. You see, gentleness and patience, these are not just two really good things to pick up. These are two vital things for the life of any believer. They're two things we're gonna need to put in our knapsack for our long, obedient journey in the same direction if we're gonna be following Jesus in this thing called the calling. And so here's the question I wanna pose to you guys tonight as we begin to wrap up here, as the band comes on stage. When it comes to things like patience, and it comes to things like gentleness, and it comes to things like bearing one another's burden in love, and it comes to things like practicing unity, not drama, where are each of you currently the strongest right now? And where are each of you currently the weakest right now? In other words, what is it God is most cheering you on in in your life? And which of these things is maybe something God wants to speak to you today and challenge you to begin working on in your life? Patience, kindness, uh, gentleness, bearing one another's burdens in love, and practicing unity, not drama. I wanna give you about 60 seconds just to reflect on, on those two virtues and the two practices that redirect them. And just in your own heart ask, God, is there anything you're trying to challenge me on in my own life, in my own discipleship, in my long obedient journey in the same direction? Take 60 seconds just to reflect on that. And then I'm gonna bring us together to sing a declarative song. Take 60 seconds.